Well, we're working through uh, this series, uh, a series, The Walk of Life, uh, an opportunity for us to just spend some time over a few weeks thinking about life, thinking about our day-to-day walk, how should we live. Um, I guess most of us are filled with thoughts about that. How should I live? What's the purpose of life? What should I get out of it? What should I put into it? What should I expect of it? Our answers in a gathering like this, I guess, our answers are going to be all over the chart. We're going to have all sorts of different perspectives. But what we're about, really, is not creating our own perspectives, not working out how I decide I should live. At least that's one of the demands that the message of the Bible and the, uh, the claims of the living God, according to the Bible, makes of us. That we, are not, we don't have the kind of freedom and liberty that we think we have to decide how we ought to live. But rather, that God speaks to us and he says, this is how you are to live. If you claim, if you claim to be a follower of Jesus Christ, if you claim to be a disciple of Jesus, then he's saying to you and to me, therefore, live like this. We're working through one of the sermons of Jesus. It's very often called the Sermon on the Mount. It's, one of the, it's the first sermon recorded in uh, the Gospel of Matthew where Jesus lays out perspectives on how to live. One of the things that we've been able to see as we've been working through this, however, is that there is a paradox On the one hand, Jesus says, live like this. And then on the other hand, there is the growing realization that we cannot live the way that Jesus calls us to live. It's a paradox. That's the challenge that we face. And I want to look now, this afternoon, as we we move into this next section. Last week, we were looking at, I guess, our attitudes towards people who are more distant from us. Now we're talking about people who are closest to us. How should I live in relation to sex? How should I live in relation to relational commitment? And how should I live in relation to promises that I make? All of those are related to people who are very close to us. What does Jesus demand of us? What does the message of the gospel demand of us in those areas. For a start, I want to suggest, opening up, that as soon as Jesus speaks to us, he challenges the spirit of our thinking. I guess trying to capture the spirit of our thinking is, is massively difficult. 2,000 years ago, the Apostle Paul said, uh, one way that I can give you an idea of what was being said is by pointing to some of your poets. Some of your poets have got an idea of what's going on. Well, I'm going to introduce one of the, um, one of the poets of the late 80s and early 90s, a band called the Stone Roses. Some of you will know of them, some of you won't know about them at all, but in one of their songs they use these words. In fact, these are the only words in the song. I don't need to sell my soul. He's already in me. 
bit of a play on words, bit of a catch, kind of capturing an idea. The idea of selling your soul to the devil. The idea of throwing yourself over to the dark side. You know, that kind of the evil side. What does it look like, according to the stone roses, if you sell your soul? I don't need to sell my soul. He's already in me. The only other words in the song are, I want to be adored. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that fascinating? The definition of what it means, paradoxically, is to be adored. In other words, put it another way, for me to be at the center. For me to be the focal point of my thinking for me to be the focal point of everything that goes on around me. I think we live in an age, don't we, where everything is about us at the center. Whether it's the depths of encouraging us to just embrace a free grabbing of everything that we possibly can, whether experience, whether money, whether relationships, whether drink or drugs, just grab whatever we can and make the most of it, or whether it's this absolutely obsessive commitment to self-esteem. You know, the kind of, everything is about us feeling good about ourselves. Me at the center. Well, we could say me at the center. We could say it's all about me. We could say, I want to be adored. Jesus comes along and he says, this is how you are to live. Firstly, think about your sexual relationships. You've heard it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Here's the thing. Jesus, once again, once again, he throws a rope, a kind of a a line back into the history of these people who are listening to him. And he says, you know, you know that it was said back there. In fact, it was said, no less than by God himself, you shall not commit adultery. You hold on to that. You've committed that to a way of living. You should not commit adultery. Now, let me just, Jesus says, take that and let me move it beyond any expectation that you could possibly have ever imagined. That's what he's doing. He's saying, let me take that clear-cut, nice, neat, straightforward tick box of the law. Have I, haven't I? Tick box. Now let me move it to a point which shocks you. If you've looked at a woman... With lust in your heart, then you have broken that law. Bear in mind the context in which Jesus is speaking these things. I reckon that in our context today, we just say, look, it's like this. If you looked at a woman or if you've looked at a man, 
with lust in your heart, you've broken that law. That was as shocking for the people of Jesus' day as it is for our culture today, isn't it? When we think about what Jesus is saying, it is beyond our, our ability to compute that idea. That what we know to be wrong, what we, in our hearts, because of the pain that it causes, because of the issues and the challenges and the ability of, for many of us to not fulfill the promises that we keep, that hurt that it causes, we know that there is wrong, the absolute, in the absolute, and yet Jesus says, but even if you've thought it, you're guilty. It's an amazing statement. We live in a world, don't we? We live in a context where, well, it was coined, I think, in the 1960s in the world of marketing, the idea that sex sells. It's just, that's the way to sell. We've had it just explode over our, our screens in terms of a debate uh, with everybody from Annie Lennox getting involved in the Miley Cyrus video, Wrecking Ball, where there is a massive concern. What is going on? What is happening here? What is Jesus 2,000 years ago putting his finger on and nailing? What is he saying when he changes our thinking? He's saying this. You you like the idea of keeping it as a nice, neat tick box. But when your attitude in your heart is lustful, just by looking, you are revealing that what you are about is not thinking highly of that person, but creating that person to be an object of your desire. That's the problem. That's precisely what Annie Lennox is concerned about Miley Cyrus and the Wrecking Ball video. You know, the objectivizing of women and the issue of the objectivizing And the idea of sex as not a a relational commitment, but the removal of any kind of context of relationship and dragging everybody into that idea of just objectivizing. Just become objects. Do you know, it's just amazing, isn't it, that Jesus, in what he was saying 2,000 years ago, was nailing this very issue. He's saying whenever we think like that, we reveal our hearts, that our hearts are not for that person at all. Our hearts are not in any sense, in any way, seeking the honor, the goodness, the just, the rightness of that. They become less than us. And sex becomes a mechanism of self-serving. It's about what I get out of it. It's about what I experience. It has got nothing to do with the other person. It's about what, it, what does it for me. When we start to present Jesus' words, that after all were 
spoken 2,000 years ago, and we start to create the connections with the world that we now live in today, it is mind-blowing, isn't it? That we, we could almost hear these words, Jesus speaking to us today, with exactly the same words, and you know what? Nothing's changed, has it? Nothing has changed. We still have the same problem. We still have the same issue. What did we see last week that Jesus did? He said, now let me just take one of the laws that you nice, you like to keep it out there. You like to keep it in a way that you can be sure that you can uh, fulfill that law and make sure that you can turn around to me and say, I've been a good boy or I've been a good girl. I can tick the box. That's great. I've done it. And Jesus says, now let me just get under the skin of what was really being said. Your issue is not that nice tick box, have I committed adultery? Your issue is the deeper issue that you do not think highly of those around you. You look for, for relationships which are just about you. And then we realize that we have an impossible commandment to keep, don't we? Because after all, Another paradox is that God has created us to find each other attractive. Isn't that crazy in one sense? We cannot keep it. We find it impossible to keep. So what does Jesus turn around and say? In the light of a commandment which is so, so impossible to keep, now let me give you the remedy. Because after all, if you want to make sure that you don't fail, then of course you would want to pursue the remedy, wouldn't you? Of course you would. Jesus would say to his hearers, I know that you want to keep the law and fulfill the law before me, so I'm going to make sure that you know what you can do before me. All that you need to do is cut off your hand or pluck out your eye every time that you realize that you are sinning. No problem. No problem, is it? Just cut, out, cut off your hand, pluck out your eye, and make sure that you do that because the issue is massive. Because if you don't, then you face hell. Separation from me for eternity. That's the description that Jesus uses. You face judgment from God if you don't do what is necessary to keep the law. Here's the thing, let me put myself in that uh, that position, and I find that I sin, so I pluck my eye out. And then I find that I sin again, and I pluck my other eye out. And then I find that I sin again, and as Jesus says in Mark, I chop off my hand, and then I chop off my other hand, and then I chop off one foot and then the other foot, because all of these are the demands that Jesus is making upon me to keep the law. What is Jesus doing? Do you think he really is saying, pluck your eye out? If Jesus is really saying that, we have missed it. We've just missed it. He's actually saying, you can't keep the commandments. And you can't do what's necessary to restore the problem. You would end up a torso trying to get into heaven. You can't do it. You will fail. You can't keep the law and you can't meet the remedy. 
And the issue and the problem is because deep down, you're at the center. It's all about my own experience. Sex is about what I get out of it. Here we go, folks. We live in an age where what I get out of sex is our default position of our understanding of what it's all about. That is our default position. It's what we see explained in, in every agony ant column, in every film, in every piece of literature. Sex is about what I get out of it. And Jesus is saying, when we apply that principle, we have had it. What about commitment? Jesus moves on from the issue which seems a huge challenge to all of us, the issue of changing what it seems, the the, the standards of fidelity in terms of our observance of each other, to a standard of fidelity which seems exceptional. It's been said, verse 31, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality makes her a victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Divorce. Massive issue, hasn't it, for the church down through the centuries. In fact, uh, the issue of divorce is exactly the reason why we live in Great Britain Uh, And we are a Protestant country as opposed to a Catholic country because way back Henry VIII um, wanted to resolve this problem of relationship and divorce his wife and there was a conflict with the Pope and that's why we are where we are. It has been a perennial question and yet it continues to be a question for us today. Divorce rates in our country probably expect at the moment around 42% of marriages to end in divorce. Huge increase, 42% is a massive increase. And we might look at this and think, well, Jesus is making some massive claims here, isn't he? Let me just say, before before we launch into a particular perspective, let me just stop us in our tracks for a moment. Divorce in Jesus' day was absolutely rife. It was absolutely rife. Moses had made a commitment, according to God, in the law, regarding marriage relationships. And then later on in Deuteronomy, he writes about the opportunity to give a certificate of divorce. In Jesus' day, in Matthew, uh, Deuteronomy chapter 24, uh, sorry, 23, we read this. If, uh, sorry, 24. I'm going to turn to it. Deuteronomy 24 says this. If a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her, he writes her a certificate of divorce. By the time Jesus was teaching... That idea had been twisted and bent out of shape so extensively, so massively, so incredibly 
that the, the Mishnah, which is part of the thinking of how this law works, it says this. A woman is divorced irrespective of her will. A man divorces of his own accord. In other words, a guy could divorce a woman if she didn't have meal on the table quickly enough. He could divorce a woman if she hadn't combed her hair that morning. He could divorce a woman if she just looked sad. Anything that displeases. You know, when we start talking about that kind of relational problem, Jesus comes along and he deals with it. Look at what he says. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality makes her the victim of adultery. (laughs) Isn't that remarkable what Jesus says? You see, in a world where there was the the kind of uh, the misogynistic attitude towards women, let me make it really clear what Jesus is doing. Jesus is breaking into that misogynistic kind of an attitude which is women are the root of all problems in the world, we can get rid of them, and men are the supreme beings. Jesus comes in and starts the journey of turning that around. Do not think, do not think, that the message of the Christian faith is the kind of continued fulfillment of a misogynistic ideal. It is Jesus who breaks into this world and gets a hold of guys and verbally grabs them by the throat and says, if you carry on behaving in that way, you are the ones who are guilty. You are the ones who are guilty. Because you're the ones who are considering that anything, any reason, is a reason to get rid. It was mind-blowing. It was shocking what Jesus says, because it had so been written into society that it was perfectly acceptable. There's another moment, you know, when Jesus speaks to a woman who'd been married five times, a woman at a well. She was the victim of this kind of behavior, it would seem. This kind of uh, commodity attitude towards relationships. The idea that this, a woman is a commodity, a possession. Something that belongs to me that I can cast off whenever I want to. Jesus spends time engaging with her, talking with her, showing her dignity, showing her respect. At that moment in time, he shows dignity to the woman. At this moment in time, he grabs the guys by the throat and he verbally slaps them and he says, stop behaving the way you are because all that you are doing is you are effectively considering this beautiful relationship as a commodity to be used at your disposal. You know, it is exactly the same issue as the previous issue of adultery. It is going into a relationship, a marriage relationship, and saying, effectively, this relationship is all about what I get out of it. It's all about me. 
It's all about me. <laughs> and if it doesn't work out, I'll chuck it away. I'll chuck her away. I'll throw her out and get another one. Because it's got to be satisfying for me. You know, paradoxically, in a strange way, I think the massive increase in, in divorce rates that we see is, in a strange way, it is the, let me just try and word this really carefully so that you, you hear me right. It is the right response to the continuing process of the valuing of women. When we look historically, when we look historically, we see a history. In fact, it was captured by that genius little program called The Midwife. The kind of attitudes in the 1950s and earlier of men towards women. You know, in a strange way, men, women were still possessions in one sense back there, weren't they? They continued to be owned in one sense or another. And in a sense, what we see now is a response to that. In a way, a dignity. And yet, paradoxically, also showing to us that we have a continuing problem. We have a continuing problem. Because when we continue to enter into, a relation, into our relationships, when we continue to enter into relationships and find that it's not satisfying, we might have reached that good point where the dignity and value of women is reaching a point where it is a value, the same value as men. I accept that. I understand all of that. But the reality is that we both now have the opportunity to say it is all about me. We both have the opportunity to say that it is all about me. And we enter continually then into relationships which we expect that it's all about me. And when it's all about me isn't satisfied, then I have the freedom and the liberty to find something which does satisfy isn't that a problem? Isn't that a tragedy? In a, let me just, I know that many, many of us here have gone through these kind of difficulties. Let me just try to make it really clear. Jesus is entering into this issue. And a bit like the previous one, he's wanting to raise it to the point where we realize more that we are not able to keep the law. We're unable. We find within us, a, all of us, in one sense or another, a self-centered streak, which, which doesn't fully allow us to meet the requirements that keep it going. And Jesus says, look, change the way you think. Change the attitude that you enter into these relationships with. He goes on. Me at the center of promises. Again, you've heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the oaths you have made. 
Doesn't that sound a good thing? Doesn't it sound a good thing that we make a promise to God and then we fulfill it? You've made an oath to God, make sure you fulfill the oath to God. That's a good thing, isn't it? You've heard it said. Then Jesus says, but I tell you, do not swear an oath at all. In a sense, Jesus reverses something that has previously been said. Jesus has established in Leviticus in various ways, it's right, but you should do this. And then Jesus comes along now and he says, don't do that. Don't swear either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. I think that last little phrase is the key to it. Jesus is saying, make a promise. What is an oath all about? It's an absolute promise to keep. I will do this. I absolutely commit myself to doing this. I will. Can you do that? Can you do that? You might be able to say it. You might be able to say it. But then there are a million things that can happen. There are a million events in life which could happen, which mean that what you have said becomes impossible for you to keep. You can't keep it. That last little phrase that Jesus says, you can't, you can't control things. You can't, you know, you can't change your black hair to white and you can't change your white hair to black. Well, not without dyes or whatever else you might want to use. You can't just speak it and make it happen. You cannot keep it. And yet what Jesus is challenging is we live in a world and we live with a kind of attitude that says, I can deliver, I'm at the center, I can do it. Jesus is not saying, I don't think here. Listen, when you end up having to go in court and and you're called to swear uh, uh, on the Bible that you will answer truthfully. I don't think Jesus is saying, don't swear in that way. I think he's saying, you know what, if you're called into court, that's the tradition and pattern of the day. Make a promise and, and tell the truth. He's not saying don't do that. He's saying, listen, think about the kind of things that you can commit to and realize you can't commit to them. So let your yes be yes and your no be no. Let you just, just, what is Jesus continually doing in these three steps? I think he's breaking our arrogance. He's breaking our self-reliance. He's humbling us and saying, do you know what? You can't keep your eyes appropriately. You can't keep your relationships appropriately. You can't keep your promises appropriately. You can't do it. He's saying at the same time, To those who love and believe in him, that's how you ought to aspire to live. The fact that we can't do it doesn't mean that we give up on on seeking that, that identity. He says, commit yourselves to it. 
but really understand that you are a broken individual who cannot keep the promises, who cannot live in the way that Jesus now ups the ante in terms of what the law actually says. Where does that leave us? Where does the words of Jesus leave us in relation to this? I think it leaves us like this. I'm helpless. I'm helpless. I can't keep it. I can't do it. Where does that, does that lead, does that result in brokenness and and despair? Or is the whole message of Jesus something that resolves that very problem? Doesn't Jesus enter into our experience, enter into our understanding, and bring good news? The gospel is the response to this problem. The gospel, the good news of Jesus, is the response. They say, well, well, how? How do these relate to the gospel? As a frail promise breaker, which is what I am, unable to control the world around me, how does the gospel answer this? How does the message of Jesus answer this like this Jesus as he said at the beginning of this very message I have come to fulfill it all so when I raise the the expectation of the law when I make the issue, not so much whether you've tick boxed, have I done it or not done it, and I raise it to a point where it's all about my attitude towards the other person, where it becomes about whether I've objectified somebody, Jesus comes in and he says, I've fulfilled that. I've fulfilled that very requirement. I've come in with an, if we look at the way Jesus lives, with an individual Honouring love towards everybody. Everybody around him. Even those who despised him. Even the Pharisees who he confronts at times. He confronts them as we see in the Old Testament. He confronts them in a sense out of love. Because he says don't carry on going in the wrong direction. Jesus steps in and he fulfills the very life that we realise we cannot keep. One of the amazing things is that we see that actually marriage has got a much bigger purpose. Throughout the Bible, it's it's this constant reflection of God's relationship with his people. It starts at the very beginning where God creates Adam and Eve and he creates them in a marriage relationship. And it ends at the end of the Bible where the people of God become the bride of Jesus. And there's another marriage... And Jesus says, do you know what? I will never, never be self-serving in my marriage relationship with my people. I will never be self-serving. Never. You might be adulterous towards me. You might be self-serving towards me. 
but I will never be self-serving towards you. No one will ever be able to turn around to me and say, you've cast them out and you're guilty of adultery. Nobody will ever be able to say that about me because I am the utterly faithful one. Isn't that amazing news? That is good news. It means that I I am in a sense free to fail. I can be broken. I can be shattered. I can be on my knees in absolute failure. And the bride of the church of of Christ, Jesus himself, uh, the bridegroom, Jesus himself, is the one who says, I will never, never desert you. What was the problem for these people? She hasn't combed her hair. She hasn't got the meal on the table. I'm going to get rid of her. Do you know what? Our sins and our failures are just like that before Jesus. We haven't combed our hair. We haven't got the meal on the table. We've been adulterous as individuals. And Jesus says, I will never, never cast you out. I will never reject you. That's good news. And then Jesus says, finally, effectively he says, you might be the ones who can't. You can't ever make promises in a way. You're making oaths that in a way you can't keep. You're designed and you're made to be honest and truthful and faithful. But all of that process of the law is to make you realize you can't do it. But I'm the one who can. I've made you a promise. What does Jesus' promises look like? Looks a bit like this. When you realize that you are broken. When you realize that you are in the light of the demands that Jesus makes and utter failure. He says, but trust in me. Have faith in me because I'm the one who's been successful. I'm the one who has kept the law. Believing in me is sufficient for you to know life. I've made you that promise. That's what's needed. Believe in me. That's my promise. Because my promise is this. When I return to judge the world and you stand before me, In your broken sinfulness, by nature, you will be clothed in my righteousness if you trust in me. There's my promise. You can't see it yet, but I can keep it. You can't keep your promises, but I can. You don't know what the next moment is going to bring, but I do. And here's my promise to you. If you trust in me, I guarantee that you will be saved. That's a promise that Jesus can keep. He's basically saying to you and me, do you think you can keep your oaths? No. (laughs) But I can. And my oath to you is life. I guess the issue is whether we are going to continue with that self-centered attitude, it's all about me, or whether we are going to step into relationship with him, enter into his kingdom, And effectively say this, it is all about you.